Ladies and gentlemen, this is your places call. All right, everybody, back to one. Standby lights one and sound one. Camera speeding. Audio speeding. Lights and sound. Go. And action. Guten Tag, everybody. <laughs> welcome. Is that how you say hello? Uh, welcome back to Pretend World's Real People. <laughs> uh, I am one of your hosts. My name is Tyler. And I'm uh, your other host. Uh, my name is Stephanie. I, <laughs> I clearly, I'm still distracted by Guten Tag. <laughs> I do and I can't decide if you decided to try to use a different language because our guest today is Welsh and you got inspired or if that was just. <laughs> I've actually just had a Die Hard on my mind recently. Oh, so. that's fair. <laughs> yeah, we, we have a, a, a Welsh friend of Steph's, right? Yes, she is um, a wonderful director that I worked with a couple of years ago. She actually was the director on the show that I did with Melissa Zaremba, um, who was a choreographer, who was one Ooh. of our guests, our first guest of the 2021 year. So a nice little group there. Um, but Melissa Annis is a amazing director, playwright. She does TV, all of these different things. Um, and she's a fabulous woman and she's here to talk with us today. Hi, Melissa. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yay! It's so good to hear I'm your voice. Oh, I know. It's been so long. So well, long. I don't even know how long because time is just melting away right now. So it could have been two years or it could have been 10 since we worked I know, together. I know. It's not feels sure. like 10. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, um, so Melissa, we're just going to jump right in. And why don't you tell our listeners who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, so I'm terrible at this part. So forgive me if I ramble. Um, my name is Melissa Annis. I'm from Wales. I always start with that because people are always like, where are you from? So I'm from Wales. I am a, a playwright, a TV writer, a screenwriter. I'm a director in theater. I'm also now, since the pandemic started, a line producer, which is a whole new uh, bag of tricks I've had to learn. So I'm a line producer and I, uh, and I teach. I also teach at uh, New York University at the Tisch Department of Dramatic Arts or Dramatic Writing, I think they call it. Oh, God, awesome. I don't even know where I work. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> <laughs> so I basically do a lot of stuff. I have a lot of hats um, that I wear. Yeah. Do you have a favorite hat? Oh, you know, people ask me that. I actually don't. I find that when I'm working in one hat, I'm going to stretch this knowledge as far as I can now, this hat thing. But um, when I'm wearing one hat, I seem to want to be wearing the other interesting so that's kind of helpful for me to keep um creative because while I'm directing I think oh I really want to be writing right now and then it launches me into writing once I finish a job and vice versa so it's um yeah so I don't have a favorite uh, okay all right yeah. <laughs> yeah. do you find yourself that's really funny you put it that way because do you find yourself especially if you're directing and you're not near a space where you can write uh, I myself take notes in small notebooks I keep around like my car and the office to a bunch of other places. Do you do you take, you know, any split second you have to write down that that fresh idea you have or that new revelation and then go to it later? Do you wait till you have a proper amount of time? You know, I wish I was like that, Tyler. I wish that I could um, take those moments and write things down. I actually don't write anything down until I'm writing because um, I'm a simmerer. I think there are so many different types of writers um, and I really wish I was a bite-sized person that could write down an idea and return to it, but I tend to work on impulse a lot. Mm. So um, normally when I'm writing, I'll have an image in my mind and that image turns into um, a feeling and then that's where I, then that feeling helps me find that impulse and I can't get rid of it until I sit down and write. Um, in some ways, I'm very lucky because it means I can write a play in three days, you know, um, until that impulse is gone and then it's done. But in other ways, it's very frustrating because it means that I forget things if I don't get the time, you know, I have to make that time for myself. So it's, uh, I'm sure there are many plays that started in my head that never got completed because of uh, exactly that. But, right. You know. But I feel like you get the important ones out. Like not every idea you have is probably going to be the best one anyway. Right. So no, exactly. the ones that you, yeah, exactly. And I think that for me, and I'm sure a lot of you might uh, do this too, Tyler, I'm not sure, but for me, I tend to write the same story 
over and over and over in different circumstances with different characters until I've gotten that out of my system. So I'm sure a lot of those ideas that don't come into fruition are probably supposed to go into the gutter. Otherwise, I'd have six plays about suppression so, <laughs> other than three and then moving on. So, you know. Does that happen with you? Do you tend to write the same sort of or similar stories? I uh, I think I, I had initially I some of my stories have been spun from you know real life incidents and then like a script I I sent uh, Steph to read is something completely different so I usually toy with a certain genre uh. Uh, but I have done the all right this character is always dumped by their significant other so that's where they start in the story you know it, <laughs> and it, it becomes repetitive but um, wow the the fact that you're more of an impulse writer is, is very interesting to me because I don't know a whole lot of writers who are almost like a, like a crock pot, mm-hmm. you know, where you, like you said, you let it simmer, you let it develop mm-hmm. and then you write it from there. Uh, do you have, I guess, any sort of uh, point of origin for how you started writing stories, whether it's not, not necessarily like plays, but just writing in general? Um, let me think. Um, do I have a point of origin writing in general? Well, I always wrote as a young person um, because in Wales, we have this tradition called the Eisteddfod. And um, in the Eisteddfod, it's essentially a place where um, young people come together, they write poetry, they write plays, they sing songs, they do all these things. And you do it from like the age of five until you're 21. So it's, it's almost oh, wow. like this sort of talent contest situation that we get into, <laughs> but it doesn't feel like a talent contest because actually it's, um, it's a lot more of a, um, a cultural event, the Eisteddfod, and it's all in the Welsh language. So all that to say that... Um, I actually have been writing a long time because I used to write for the Estadvod. Um, and so that's where I started writing. And then I let go of it for a long time and became an actor. Um, I was in a soap opera for a long time, a Welsh language soap opera, and um, used to do a lot of theater and things like that. So I kind of abandoned writing for a while, I guess, because I didn't know I wanted to do it. It was that thing of wearing the hats, right? Yeah. And it was not wearing that hat for such a long time that got me back to it. So when I turned 30, which feels like a <laughs> lifetime ago now, it is a <laughs> lifetime ago. Um, when I turned 30, I had um, an opportunity to uh, take a writing class. So I took a writing class uh, with a theater company called Primary Stages mm-hmm. in um, New York City. And they really encouraged me to keep writing. It was really wonderful. Winter Miller was one of my teachers and she was a big influence on me. Kuzi Cram was another one of my teachers and she was a big influence on me. And by the end of that year, um, they had actually started an MFA program in playwriting through um, primary stages in Fordham. So they gave me a scholarship to go and continue with my writing, which was amazing because I'd never even considered it as an option for my life. And it completely changed my life because from that day onwards, I considered myself a writer, went to grad school, went to, you know, learned all that sort of stuff. And um, so it was a bit of a meandering journey, Tyler, to answer your question. Um, (laughs) And now that I'm here, I feel like it's a coat that I enjoy wearing. Um, So it's, uh, yeah, that's kind of how I got to it. Does that make sense? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, definitely. And I love all your clothing analogies. A coat, a hat, you're you're really killing it today. (laughs) I think it's because we don't get to go out to get dressed up anymore. Right? That's all I want to do is like put a pair of heels on, put some makeup on and go outside, but there's nowhere to go in New York City. So, uh, yeah. But I do think that we as theater makers and filmmakers, we are natural storytellers anyway. Yes. You know, and it's, um, it's not a huge leap to go from directing to playwriting. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just the trick is when you're doing one or the other, not to write the playwrights play when you're directing you know mm-hmm. and not to try and direct while you're playwriting but it's uh, but we are natural storytellers so yeah. it felt like a very natural place for me to go was playwriting in the end I am curious about that I, I've been thinking about that a lot actually preparing for this interview and um, because you're such a prolific playwright and director how many of your plays have you directed versus how many have you let or asked somebody else to direct um and and how do you find that balance what is that like for you yeah I've actually never directed any of my own work wow yeah and it's interesting because I used to be very um 
I used to really hate the idea. I used to think, no way would I ever direct my own work. I need to have that distance. I want to have the collaboration so that the ideas can grow. Um, but since the pandemic, that has really changed for me. Hmm. I really feel as though I want to go out and try and visualize my own writing uh, for the first time. And I don't know if that's a sort of a part of just wanting to find some control somewhere in life that could be a part of it. I don't know. Because um, I've had good collaborations with directors as a writer, but I just feel the need to have more space, have more time and have more exploration with work, not just doing the whole writing the play, going into workshop, putting it on stage. Okay, it's done. I'd like to have more process in my life going sure. forward. Okay. Um, what do you find to be the most rewarding in that, that collaboration of working with a director on a piece that you've written and with the cast and whatnot? What is it? Are you often like, oh man, I didn't even think of that. Or is it just more, oh great. I, I know how to kind of round this character out better. Or I know how to, you know, is it more just insightful in general? Mm -hmm. Um, I think that one of my favorite experiences was many years ago with uh, actually a mutual oh, friend of ours, yeah, Kel Haney. Yeah, with Kel. She was such a great director to work yes. with. I'm dying to work with her again, actually. Um, what I learned from her was that I didn't know everything. And it's actually quite nice to have that pressure taken off because sometimes as a writer, the thing that people don't realize when you go into a rehearsal room is how terrifying it is. It's absolutely terrifying because everyone's expecting you to have the answers and you don't always have the answers. And what was great about Kel, working with Kel is that she um, loved to explore moments and allowed me to make mistakes, allowed me to try new things. And then the um, production then grew into something more than I could imagine it was on page. Um, and that was very exciting to me. So I think that the benefit of working with a collaborator um, in terms of a director is that, you know, you get to, the pressure is taken off a little bit and that's great. I yeah. love that. Okay. Huh. I mean, with the, the pandemic, we've seen a lot of writers, you know, even dipping their toes in, uh, taking their work into a short film via iPhone or, you know, doing something over Zoom. Have you thought about doing anything like that recently? <laughs> Funny you should say that. <laughs> <time>. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, so I've been doing a lot of online work during this time. Um, I actually am currently line producer on a movie with Berkeley Rep. Awesome. They're great actually to work with. Um, it's an adaptation um, of Virginia Woolf's novel, The Waves. So uh, Lisa Peterson has written it and Raul Esparza is the co-writer. Um, and it's really fun to sort of dive into what is the possibility within these sort of parameters that we have. So that's been fun doing that. And I also um, co-produced a movie with Teresa Rebeck this summer too, which was great fun. Um, and we did that, exactly that. We had an iPhone and we sent it out to our actor couple friends and said, here's the script, let's make a movie via Zoom. So we've done a lot of that. Um, and then in terms of my own work, uh, I've been writing a lot for Zoom. A lot of theater companies have needed a lot of um, shorter pieces for fundraising. Mm. Um, so I've been doing a lot of for Zoom playwriting, which has been interesting because I don't believe that Zoom is a substitute no. for plays, you know, oh. and I refuse to actually do a read. I know this sounds so disappointing, <laughs> but I refuse, do, <laughs> I refuse to do readings of my plays in public on Zoom because it just, that's not the way it's supposed to exist. And it's not helpful to anyone or myself as, a, as an artist. So writing for Zoom has been a fun experience and it's a different type of writing. Um, so that's been good. And I've directed a bunch of workshops and readings over Zoom for other people, mostly for screenwriters, which has been oh, interesting. interesting. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, screenwriters really just trying to see sort of what the pace of the piece is and all of that sort of thing. So, yeah, I've been using Zoom a lot. You know, it's, uh, yeah, definitely getting square eyes, that's for sure. <laughs> collaborating actually that's the other thing zoom has actually been great for because i'm writing a musical at the moment and it's really fabulous to uh be able to be with my uh collaborator with the songwriter and just sort of chill on the computer and talk and jam and she has a good guitar and you know i have my final draft up that's going in real time so that's working really well 
And I don't know why we didn't do it before the pandemic. It seems that we didn't know how before. Yeah, definitely. Lots of things have been forced upon us that we have now become proficient in in just a year's time. But what is that like to write for us, like, Fourth company, they're like, hey, we're doing this benefit via Zoom. We need you to write something really quick versus writing a play that you've had simmering for a while. That seems like two very different styles. Yeah, um, it is very different. Thank goodness those are short form. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't require more than 20 minutes of writing in terms of, you know, what the structure is. So that's still uh, a lot of work to do 20 minutes of um, play, but still. Um, so the big difference is that I must be honest, because I've written for, um, some television and radio, I've done a lot of, um, radio plays at this point, I'm used to working to deadline and deadlines are helpful for me to work. Um, so what I tend to do is just sort of, uh, sit down and think, well, what is the subject that they need and where am I in that subject? Um, for example, there was one theater company in Dublin that asked me to uh, write a piece for them called uh, Transatlantic Tales. And what they wanted was one person in Ireland and one person in America. So that was my brief and it had to be three minutes long. You know, and I was like, what can you say in three minutes? So I just found the thing that I was interested in within that and wrote to that brief. Whereas, you know, when I'm writing for myself, it's just more furious and messy and less um, mechanical in a way. Okay. It's fascinating that brains can switch between those two things. Like I, you know, I'm very much like you and that, um, I mean, I don't write plays or anything like that, but I'll often, I'll write a blog every once in a while. Um, Your blogs are beautiful. I've been reading them. They're absolutely lovely. They're really, really beautifully constructed. Um, But those, so when I write them, um, I'm very much the same way. I have to write them till they're done. I like get the impulse and then it's in me until it's, it's out on, onto the screen. And so um, I couldn't imagine being handed like a context and going, okay, write this thing. Like, am I, I don't think I can switch my brain over. So it's really, it's really fascinating that you can. I do think, (laughs) I think that the big difference is that, and I don't mean to say that one is cheaper than the other, but you do tend to dig deeper in a different way when you're working on your impulse and you're doing it for yourself. Whereas when you're working, at least when I'm working to deadline, of course you have to find the things that you want to find, but it's a different, there's a different type of vulnerability involved. It's more of a, I hope my boss likes this than, oh my God, what am I putting out in the world for me? And for the audience. That is a hundred percent. It's but, weird, isn't it? It's like there's yeah. an emotional switch too that you can tap into sometimes and sometimes you just can't. <laughs> yeah, there's, I had, a, I had a prompt for a writing job interview that is 10 to 15 pages. They said, hey, you have two weeks to write this. And like, like you, I sat down and I gave myself a week before the deadline to get that finished. But I have two big dry race boards of, you know, two other projects I want to finish that are both half done and being toyed with. So I totally get, I'm going to get this done. We'll see. Hopefully they like it. But uh, these other two, it's going to take more time. We'll see. Uh, I do like to ask each writer though, does music play a factor in how you write, whether you're listening to a song that may inspire a scene or, uh, you know, do you like listening to music as you write? Are you more of the, uh, I guess, diegetic type that likes to listen to the city sounds when you write? What's that like for your writing process? <laughs> I can diegetic. erase that from my board now. <clears throat> I use the- <laughs> um, I'm not going to answer quite as eloquently as you uh, asked the question, <laughs> but... Um... <laughs> Uh, I don't listen to music while I write. I find it incredibly distracting. Um, Anything with any emotion that's not my own in the moment um, completely takes me out of the moment and into my head, which is not good. Um, I have found that, I mean, there's a couple of plays that I have where music plays a role in the sense of helping creating mood and whatnot. but I wouldn't say that music is a big part of my process at all. In fact, 
even the sounds of the streets annoy me. <laughs> I feel like I should be in some sign, some kind of like tiny bubble of no sound is preferable for, for me. And also for everybody else, because you know, I have playwright friends who go to cafes to write and go to bars to write. And I'm like, I don't want to subject other people to my noise when I'm playwriting because I don't, I'm doing all the voices as I work. It's oh really, God. really That's crazy. Amazing. Yeah, it's, uh, and I didn't know I was doing it until someone once told me and I thought, oh, okay. Yeah, because it's the way that I think because I used to be an actor, it helps me figure out how it would manifest in a character's voice and how, um, what the rhythm is and, and even the emotional intelligence or the emotional capacity of a character. I'm not very good at doing character passes, meaning, um, you know, what is my protagonist feeling in this draft? Okay, I'm going to work on my protagonist. What is the, um, you know, what is the husband or the wife feeling in this draft? I'm going to make sure the emotional journey is complete in that. I tend to do them as I work in my first vomit draft. And although it may feel... Um, at times with my first draft, it feels like there's a lot of stuff going on. I overwrite. Mm. Uh, it's just the way I'd rather weed back and craft after I vomited, if that makes sense. Then, um, you know, they're doing it stage by stage by stage. I just need to get it all down. And so I vocalize everything That's that I'm amazing. doing and feel everything that I'm doing. <laughs> so after three days of writing, I'm exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's hilarious. I would kill to be just sit in the room and listen to you while you write <laughs> oh my gosh you know there was um a few years ago there was this thing at the drama bookshop where um you could sit in the window as a writer oh and that's write. cool and it was always really interesting mm -hmm. to go past and see sort of who was the I'm the studious one with a furrowed brow and then the ones that were like moving uh, their arms while they were writing and walking around it was really fun because awesome. we do we all manifest sort of those uh, processes differently in our bodies too. That's funny. Um, can we uh, jump back just a little bit? And I'm so curious kind of how you got to where you are right now, because you're just so prolific across the board. And, you know, we talk a little bit about how you got to being a writer, but what got you out of Wales? What, what got you just into theater in general and kind of what's that story? Yeah, um, I love that you're saying that I'm prolific because I don't feel very prolific at the moment. I'm sure as every writer during like this pandemic, but thank you. <laughs> um, so, so my journey in the arts, I guess, to start there, um, I must be honest. Uh, it's not one of those things where I was like, I've got to do this thing. I've got this fire in my belly. My whole family are in oh. the arts. Yeah, my mother's an actress who also writes. Um, my uh, stepfather's a film director who also wrote. Um, my biological father is also in the business. He was a, a location manager and a floor manager for years. And my whole side of my Anna's family, because I've got family everywhere, they're all in the arts too. My grandparents were in the arts. Um, so it was one of those things where it was kind of like the family business. Um, so it would have been weird for me to do something else almost. Yeah. So I sort of fell into it in that way. It was the only thing that I knew how to do. Even actually when I went to university, my mother was like, well, why are you doing that? Whereas most <laughs> people's parents are like, yeah, go to university. She's yeah. like, well, just go and get a job, go act, go and do it. And I was like, it's yeah. not that easy, mom. <laughs> so that was, um, so that was uh, how I got into the arts. And then when it comes to uh, moving to New York, I actually was doing a course here uh, just over a few weeks. And um, is that what I was doing? Yes, I think that's what I was doing. Gosh, it was such a long time ago. I was like 16 years ago. Um, and I was at a bar and um, I was having lots of drinks with some friends and I met this man. And this man ended up being uh, my husband. We're still married. And uh, essentially my contract at the time, I was, made, I was doing a tour, just to jump back. I was doing a tour with the National Theatre of Wales at the time. And uh, my contract was coming to an end. So I thought, well, why not just move to New York? And so I did. And uh, it all kind of just snowballed out of control from then on. Is it, <laughs> I guess, was it difficult coming from a family that is involved 
solely in the arts. So if you're writing something or if you're performing something, uh, were they far more critical of how you did certain things or was it more of an aloof, uh, do with it as you will sort of approach? Um, they definitely were not um, very critical of anything I was doing because I think that if you're from this world, as we all know, we all know how scary it is, right? And we all know what it feels like to get the critique that you don't want. So my parents were very good at not doing that because um, I think they've experienced it. But I think that there was, it was less of a big deal. You know, I think that with some, I see some of my other friends that when they have successes, it feels like they're being celebrated. Whereas when I have successes, it feels like that's a part of your job and you have to just keep moving on. And I'm not saying that as a criticism, it's just sort of, it's less of a hmm. thing, I suppose. Right. Um, to the point where I don't think that, I don't think that my parents um, have seen everything that I've done. I don't think that they're not that, <laughs> those types of people, you know, that kind of like, we have to go and see her show because it's just another show. <laughs> But to be fair, I'm the same with my mother. Whenever she was in a show, I was like, do I want to see this one? <laughs> so it's sort of, you know, it's one of those things. It's not that they were bad parents or anything like that. <laughs> I'm sure it almost keeps right. you humble with that approach too, of, you know, not looking at each success as, oh yeah, I did it. But more like, that was awesome. That was, that was wonderful. It's a great experience. What's next? Yeah, I do think that it changes. Um, I think it changes the way that you deal with, um with ambition and rejection, you know, I think that mm. it's a little bit sort of more, um, it just feels less personal because it's a job. Which I feel like more people in the industry really need to yeah. be able to wrap their head around. I mean, uh, not to say that you're not supposed to be emotional about your job, but, um, because this work is so different than your typical nine to five, we get very protective of it, I think, and very uh, mm -hmm. invested in it in a way that a lot of other people don't uh, with their jobs. And it's kind of nice to hear you say that um, because it is, it is a job. And like, that's kind of part of the purpose of this podcast is to like, let people know that these are jobs and that's really what we're doing, yeah. you know? Yeah. And that's not to say there are, um, there's so many problems within our system here in America, in Britain, all over the world. I'm sure we all have different problems. But um, the biggest problem I see is that education mm -hmm. to get into the arts is so expensive that it's become um, almost like you can only get into the arts if you have money, yes. which is um, not right. It's not how it should be and it doesn't create good art. Um, and also that there's so many people going into programs now, so many people going into writing programs, going into acting programs, that we're actually, I think, um, taking, uh, how can I say this without feeling, I don't want to offend anybody, but there are just too many people going into the arts and then not succeeding, whatever that means. They have ideas of what success means. And for a lot of people, I think it's fame. You know, I think that there's recognition. I think with social media too, we're constantly looking for this validation that we think being an actor can give us or we think being a writer can give us. Um, and so I think that we need to somehow wrestle with those ideas and say, well, actually we're arts workers. Mm -hmm. We work in the arts industry. We create things, which is a different ball game, you know, to perhaps um, working in, you know, a different uh, industry. But there are lots of people who create things. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not yeah. just as artists. Mm -hmm. Scientists create things all the time and they treat their work as work. So I think that we just need to, I don't know. There's also huge disparities in wages. Like if you're in Hollywood, you make so much money, but you can make indie films for no money. And, you know, that's not fair because ultimately we need to find some kind of equality here when it comes to the amount of money artists are making. Yeah. You know, I've got friends on Broadway who still work weekend, well, when we were open. Yeah still work weekend jobs because they're just not making enough money in the chorus which is ridiculous yeah so we just need yeah. to think of it as an industry as a workplace as opposed to aren't I lucky I'm an artist yeah that you know yeah no that was my rant no Sorry. I loved it it's necessary <laughs> I think we've heard we've heard a similar you know uh tangent from previous guests and even ourselves uh, there's 
auditions for jobs right now where they're not looking at who you are as a performer. They're looking at how many followers on Instagram you have. And they're, yeah. And that's happening yeah. across the board. Oh, with you know, every, like in that area too? Now too. Oh my God. Yeah. I've really noticed that even having conversations with producers about projects, that question comes up because it's about how to sell it before it's even made. Yeah. And that's a really difficult place to be as an artist, because what you want is someone to say, I am investing in you and your ideas, even if you fail. Yeah. You know, and actually what's happening is that we have to create an idea of a product or a project before it's created. And so there's no room for failure. And therefore, the actual art yeah. isn't as good, right. in my opinion. Uh, yep, I agree. Yeah, I didn't even think of it that way, yeah. but you're so right. They, it, when money's involved, failure isn't an option. Mm, That's unfortunate. Which is why we need, you know, <laughs> government funding for the arts. Mm-hmm. You know, people seem to think that it's this luxury to have that, but actually there's a reason the Greeks had plays, you know? It helps with democracy. It helps with empathy. It's good for society. Yeah. You know, so we need to, I think that we really need to start pushing for a lot more um, support, government support, local support, national support, international support for the arts, because uh, arts workers are suffering terribly right yeah. now. Yeah, we've noticed some of that through, you know, people we've reached out to, to, you know, come on the show and share their stories, or their their representation, you know, for them, it's all about numbers, and, and you know, whether you compensate or not, and uh, how how far ranked are you? You know, with this podcast, where the first email said mm-hmm. we're small, <laughs> we're just trying to share everyone's stories. Yeah. So, uh, wow, I didn't even think about even producers having that sort of talk too. But yeah, you, Steph, you're right. When there's money involved, unless you're mm-hmm. you know making a guaranteed IP adaptation, there's really nothing that that's going to matter outside of high numbers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that's why there are so many adaptations and sequels and you know comic books being made into things because it's an easy sell mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right you don't have to educate your audience to come and see something mm-hmm. you know that's the thing that sorry not that I mean to lecture your audience no, here, but that's it. the thing that that we forget too as artists is that it's about our work but it's also about the audience right it's about trying to reach out to somebody else and that takes a certain amount of investment which is educating your audience so that they feel like they have permission to walk into a theater, to walk into a film that they think is too arty, you know, and all of those things. Um, but we're currently in this place that money is driving so much of it that we're not educating our audiences. Um, and so we're yeah. making lots of remakes. Do you, yep. do you have an adaptation, yep. an easy adaptation that you'd want to develop yourself while we're on the subject? <laughs> having, just, yeah. having just panned all adaptations, um, I actually yes! do. Yes! <laughs> what is it? <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh yeah, that put me in my place. Thank you, Tyler. <laughs> um, well, I actually have been working on a play um, about uh, a cult that is um, based on Lorca's House of Bernarda Alba. I don't know if you know this play, but it's a play from Spain. And it's about these uh, women who are um, mourning uh, the death of their father and the mothers trying to keep them away from all the men. And it's Mm. this very lusty play about women looking out at all of these um, farm workers and you know in the heat of Spain and imagining what it must be like to you know be with a man so it's really interesting so I basically um I love that play I've always loved that play I was in it when I was like 16 and it just stuck with me and um and so yeah I'm writing an adaptation based in a trailer park and uh, it's a cult in a trailer park I like of, it uh, yeah of these women but instead of having the mother figure oh, we have the cult so leader right, figure right who is essentially keeping these women uh, to himself as opposed to, wow. to the keeping them in so interesting yeah so I'm working on that it, I have a draft but I still need some uh, time to work on <laughs> yeah. it before I get anywhere. yeah but that but see for me that kind of an adaptation is a nice bridge between what you were talking about and, and writing original stuff. And, you know, because I do feel like that's going to still educate the audience because those, those 
cults exist or that kind of uh, uh, storyline can be very real and can be very dangerous. And, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's using your, I feel like it's more, it's less of an adaptation and more an inspiration by. <laughs> yes. So Yeah, exactly. I think it's, it's not an adaptation in the truest sense of the word. It's inspired by the, uh, the right. impulse is the same, right? The theme is the same. It's just how does this play work right. in our society? And I've changed some stuff, you know? It's not like, um, I know Kate Hamill does a lot of adaptations too. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's slightly different to that. I think Kate does something similar where she's inspired by it, but she actually mm-hmm. makes it into her own um, style, which I think is interesting. So yeah, adaptation and adaptation, right? <laughs> but the truth is with um, this project, the cult play, nobody... So cults yeah, are kind of in fashion now, crime. so it's a little easier. But when I first wrote it a few years ago, you know, I would send it out and they're like, well, what, why do we want to do a cult play? But as soon as I said, oh, it's an adaptation of House of Bernarda Alba, then people wanted to read it because they felt like that's something their audience would understand. So it's, um, yeah, it's interesting. But I think that's the only one. No Marvel movies that, that you secretly want to write and direct. <laughs> Gosh, I don't like uh, them. No, that it makes sense. I don't understand them. There's all this yeah. history that I'm not in on. And then I'm like, I don't know why everyone <laughs> hates each other. It's very strange. You said you were writing a musical. What is, can you talk about that a little bit and what, what it's like to write for a musical instead of just a straight play? Yeah. Um, so I'm writing a musical called The King's Wife. And um, it's a musical about Catherine of Aragon and uh, Anne Boleyn. It's actually about their relationship because actually what we know is that Anne Boleyn was Catherine of Aragon's lady-in-waiting for many years before Henry VIII um, married Anne Boleyn and of course divorced Catherine of Aragon. Um, So actually what our story is, it's a retelling of their relationship and it's less of a I'm an ambitious woman and I'm going to take the throne. It's less of that and more of a, what happens when you don't really have a choice as a woman? And we're posing the idea that perhaps Anne Boleyn isn't this vixen that she's been painted to be. Perhaps he chose her and she had no choice. Um, Because actually when you look at the source material or a lot of the material, it's all after the fact, after she was beheaded, that people wrote things about her. A lot of the stuff um, that exists from when she was alive doesn't support the narrative that we've been told. Um, Because, of course, the people who tell us things about history are the victors, which in that case were the men. And the men who wanted to allow this king to continue marrying and beheading women. So, um, So it's that story. And it's fun. It's funny. It's not as dark as it sounds. Um, I'm working with a wonderful artist named Jamie Floyd. She is a Grammy-nominated artist. She uh, just wrote Kelly Clarkson's new single, oh, and wow. she's written stuff for Kesha. Um, she's yeah, she's she's a <laughs> I hit love it. <laughs> She's kind of incredible. It's like whatever. Like I think we need a song here within two days. There's this incredible ballad, and you're like, what is going on? How do you pull this uh, out of yourself? But she does. Um, so we work, uh, we work together really well. It's interesting because she's from Nashville. So she's from that songwriting world that Nashville has. And if you're not familiar with um, Nashville, there's essentially this huge community of incredible songwriters that work for studios. They write a lot of the hits you hear on radio. Um, so she's one of those artists, you know? And when we first met, I know that nobody can really see me because we're on a podcast, but I'm a very, very sort of (laughs) Welsh looking, um, I don't know, I guess I'm kind of weird and messy and, you know, my clothes never really match and I barely wear any makeup and my hair is always like a nest. Um, And whereas Jamie is incredibly polished, very beautiful, very together, um, very business oriented because she has to be with all the song rights that she does every day. And I looked at her and I thought, oh, this is never going to work. She and I are never going to work together. Um, But as soon as we actually sat down and started finding common ground and finding the things that were interesting to us, it's actually a great match, which is really, really fun. Uh, So we get to sit with each other and just discuss scenes and see what we can 
cut out and turn into songs. And yeah, we're kind of working in that way. How did you guys get paired up? So our producer um, put us together. So the uh, original idea came from a producer, Jennifer Krantz, um, who came up with this idea about two women who were trying to um, trying to uh, better the world and that it keep getting stopped at each um, hurdle. And she knew that she wanted it to be about Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn and that they were friends. Now, of course, three years down the road, it's a very different story than what it began with. In fact, it barely has um, any uh, resemblance to what it used to be. But she came up with that idea and she commissioned us essentially to write it for her. So uh, that's how we were put together. That, oh my gosh, I have so many questions about that collaboration. That's just so interesting. Uh, <laughs> do you, <laughs> I mean, obviously it's different because you are, you're writing the, the narrative structure for it, but do you, are you adopting any of the sort of like musical um, attributes along with working uh, with her, with collaborating with her? Are you, do you feel yourself noticing different portions of, of songs or even melodies, you know, on the, on the street that are you in a sense adapting to writing this musical with her? Do you, have you noticed any changes in that way? Yeah, we're actually mm. adapting a lot every time um, we get together. So we've essentially, we've had a few drafts, full drafts now um, so we're at the stage where we've brought in a director and we've brought in a musical director. And so what we found is that every time a new collaborator comes in, mm -hmm. we have to adapt again. And in a good way, you know, not in a, oh, we have to compromise way. It's actually um, pushing us to continue thinking of the possibilities of the sound of the show. And that includes the text, right? So, um, we're working with this wonderful musical director named um, Brandon Bush, who's uh, Atlanta-based. And, um, and he's teaching us that each character has their own sound or language or signature. And uh, that's something we hadn't considered before because we were working right. in our voices, you know? Um, so now we're understanding, oh, strings, violins, that's a royal sound. Okay, that's great. Um, patter songs that's more of a childish sound so we're going to give that to Princess Mary so we're learning a lot more about how to place sound and character um, so that's been amazing and then we have this incredible director on board right now called Tamla Woodard and she's um, she's just opening up our uh, our sights when it comes to the visuals of the piece so she's really, I'm working a lot with um, adapting. I know it sounds petty, but even the stage directions, just having Tamala's um, input on what the visual will be that opens so many other things up, you know, ah. which is great. Um, so that's been a really fantastic experience too. And then we have a reading coming up of the musical in um, October, I think, at Playwrights Horizons, yes. which is really exciting. Yeah, we're very excited about that. But, um, but now we're gearing up for a new stage, which is what does it mean to bring actors into this? What does it mean to put an audience into it? So there's now an additional collaboration, which is the collaboration with the audience that we have to think about. So it's happening in parts Amazing. and in chunks. Are you, is there hope um, for a very female heavy team overall? Like it, you're, it's reminding me a lot of uh, Waitress that had Diane Paulus and um, Jesse Mueller and Sarah Bareilles and Jesse Nelson. Like they were like the first big female team that went to Broadway or whatever. And um, are you guys hoping that it, 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 once it gets into design stages and stuff you have a very feminine team and that kind of thing? Yeah, um, awesome. I do. I think that, um, I think it's important, but actually I'll be honest, uh, if I'm sort of being completely honest with you guys, I tend to work with more women anyway nowadays. And it's not really a conscious choice. It's just that that's mm. the community I grew up with. I grew up with a lot of, when I say grew up, I mean in New York, my career wise, you know, I grew up with a lot of women who weren't getting the gigs that they wanted to get, the, you know, uh, the lighting designers, the sound designers, the directors. And so um, we were all sort of scrapping together. So we've all kind of come up together. So I tend to work with more women, but I do think it's, um, I do think it's important that to recognize the fact that this is a lens 
that we're putting onto it, which is we're telling the story through the lens of the female uh, lens, shall we say. And so whatever we can do to support that storytelling is what's important. Um, whether it be male, female, um, you know, sure. trans artists, uh, opening it up to everybody who wants to tell the story with us. But we are, we tend to naturally be gravitating towards women. I just love to hear that. Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, and it, it's because I feel like women make up the majority of this industry and yet it's still very often controlled by, um, men or, you know, um, a very select few women. And so it's always nice to hear when more and more people are getting more opportunity. Um, yeah, the tough thing is, and it's something that, um, I think we have to come to terms with is that there's a huge responsibility on producers and theater companies. The artist doesn't have as much yeah. power as we would like. Um, and I think that I'm a big, big pusher of theater companies needing mm -hmm. to change their boards because ultimately it doesn't matter who the artistic director is. I mean, it does to an extent, but if you don't have a board that's um, willing to support women who don't have the resumes that men have because they haven't had the opportunities historically or um, people of color who um, are uh, trying to get a foot in but are still dealing with prejudice on every uh, job interview when it comes to working in the arts. Mm -hmm. And it happens a lot. Um, I think unless we change those boards, we will never open up those avenues to everybody else who needs Definitely. to be a part of the community. Yeah. that. That is good. We, we were noticing, I think, who were we talking to recently, Steph? We were talking about the the growing diversity within... Maybe Mercedes. Maybe, maybe, yeah, it was Mercedes, I think. Yeah. Uh, just talking about, I, I guess, essentially, we, we opened up the conversation about diversifying the, you know, the, the board members and those who actually lead the way for, for arts and seeing the growth in that. Have you noticed any sort of growth in, uh, in New York City as far as well, I guess during the pandemic, more people of of color, of diverse backgrounds, just flooding in and trying to make that change for the better. Have you noticed anything like that? Um, I mean, I'm speaking from a uh, white female mm -hmm. perspective. You're white? So I can't really... <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I really am the whitest person you'll ever meet. So those of you who can't see, I'm blending into my white wall behind me. I'm so pale. This pandemic, I've had no sunlight whatsoever. My vitamin D levels are shot. Yeah. Anyway, um, I think that... Um, okay, here's my opinion, and it's not fact. Um, my opinion is that at the beginning of last year, oh, when I say last year, I mean the beginning of this pandemic, we had a huge rush and surge to make a change in the community because of um, the tragedy of what happened to George Floyd and because of the reaction to the um, BLM movement and to Trumpism. So I think that there was this big, big push. My fear is that the pandemic has gone on so long that for some of the people who were listening initially, that's an, that's not an issue that's in the forefront mm -hmm. anymore. Um, I, I'm making assumptions here. So I'm, you know, I'm not sure if that's the case with everybody, but I do worry that um, when we do finally open up theaters again, which sounds like it's gonna be the fall at this point. I so. Yeah, I hope so, <laughs> I hope so. But I'm, I'm worried that we will have expected more change and it hasn't actually happened because mm -hmm. I'm seeing some boards diversifying in terms of having artists on their boards which I think is good I'm just not sure if it's diversity diversifying in every other way um, but we'll see you know we will see the other thing is we need to um, you know we just need to let more people have a chance in, it's different all over the country and, and having worked in different places all over the country, I feel like actually New York City is quite clicky still. And if you're not in the, um, if you're not the A team that's on Broadway and getting all the scholarships or getting all of the prizes or all that sort of thing, it's hard to break mm. through. Whereas I think regionally, 
there's a lot more opportunity and that's really exciting. And I just hope that regionally things are diversifying because I think ultimately if it happens regionally, it will happen in New York City. But it's, yeah, know, it's a push-pull yeah. thing, if that makes any sense. No, it, it totally does. And I think you have a point there. You know, we've been through this pandemic period for so long. It could take a little bit longer, but uh, yeah, I'm hoping those of us who are creating, we can still push forward a little bit mm-hmm. further once you know theaters open up and everything else starts to open up again then we get that surge mm-hmm. that you were talking mm-hmm. about that'd be amazing to see yeah i just uh i hope so yeah i really hope so because things do need to change and i think anybody who thinks otherwise are not experiencing the reality of working in the arts right, right. yeah and i think you know i think what's really the biggest struggle is things need to change and specific people need to be willing to initiate those changes. And that's where the holdup is. You know, um, I agree. I think boards should change up regularly and it had, but how do you ask someone who's been on a board for a decade or more to just give up their spot because they've done it long enough? You know, if it's truly their, you know, their passion or their whatever, and even if they are, um, of the right mindset, you know, it's, hard to just say, you're right. My time is up. I have to move on, you know? And, and I think that that's a really big struggle for a lot of people who are even, who are very well-intentioned and have good hearts and really do support, you know, change to then, but they want change to happen, not in themselves, but around them, you know, (laughs) and and that's not how change works. Yeah. And I go back to, you know, I hate to sound like the socialist that I am, (laughs) but it goes... (laughs) It goes back to that idea of money has too much power mm-hmm. when it comes to selecting art. And I think, yes, Stephanie, I agree with you 100%. How do you ask a board member to leave when they've invested? That's the thing people don't realize with board members. You bring them on because they give you money, right? So if they've invested all of this money, how do you then say, well, you know what? We still need your money, but we don't want your opinion. Um, so there needs to be a new structure involved where we can take money and not have to be forced into... Um, you know, making artistic choices due to that financing, which is hard, you know, because there's a reason why people make money is because they want to have influence. So it's like politics, you know? So what you're saying is we we shouldn't uh, embark on an American Gladiators style uh, (laughs) shift in power from old board members to new board members. Okay, I'm going to scratch that out. Yeah, (laughs) right. That's not a good idea. (laughs) <laughs> only if they can all get like cool yeah. names like wolf yeah. and lightning i just want to see lin-manuel miranda host the show that's all i want yeah, to see right? yes that would be amazing <laughs> that would be amazing um maybe turning into a slightly more positive uh happy area um what's some of your favorite memories or experiences you've had from working in a show? I mean, generally we ask the question of like, what's your best party story of something that's wild or bizarre, um, which I love to hear too, but do you just, what is it that you love about your job and and why you keep doing it? And then tell a fun story. (laughs) (laughs) Oh gosh. Um, I love artists and I love people. Um, I bartended in New York City for 12 years, um, partly because I had to pay my rent and partly because it's just, for me, being around people is nourishing, um, which is why this pandemic is so hard. Mm -hmm. But um, so my favorite part of my job is being in the rehearsal room, be it as a writer or a director. I love that feeling of just um, figuring stuff out and not knowing the answer and being okay with that until it comes to you. You know, that's very exciting to me. Um, I will say there are times when I started, uh, when I first started working in theater in New York City that I really miss. Um, I worked with a theater company called Rebellious Subjects um, right at the beginning uh, that was um, produced by uh, Lauren Ferraby, who's a phenomenal playwright. If anybody's looking for writers, she's amazing. Uh, Lauren Ferraby and uh, Patrick um, Woodall, who was a great actor who's now doing TV all over the place. And, um, you know, we just wanted to work. So we used to put Shakespeare up in the park and we used to panhandle for 
donations for sonnets, you know, so we could put Shakespeare up in the park. And we used to, you know, put couches on subways to take them to where we needed it to go and <laughs> carry them through the woods and things like that. So I really miss that scrappy, um, let's just make something mm -hmm. feeling that we used to have because we didn't have the pressure of selling tickets. We didn't have the pressure of someone telling us we were going over budget because our budget was normally like 500 bucks. Um, and it's actually some of the best work I think that I've done, weirdly enough, um, site-specific stuff in bars. We used to do, we did Twelfth Night in a bar in Bushwick That's before amazing. it was even Bushwick, you know? So that was really, really fun. And I miss that and the hijinks of all of that sort of thing. Um, on the other hand, you grow and you realize you can have a real rehearsal room instead of somebody's basement. And you can have a real stage manager like mm -hmm. Steph and that somebody like keeps you, you have collaborators in a different way, the bigger your team is. And um, that's a growing experience that is exciting. Mm -hmm. And I can't wait to see what happens when, you know, I can fly somebody into a scene one day, <laughs> you know, it's just that sort of Definitely. thing. So, yeah. So that's sort of what I love about it is I love the unexpected nature of creation. Absolutely. And now tell us a fun story that you're like, this is was so crazy, but this is how our jobs work sometimes. Oh my gosh, I don't know. I feel like every project is crazy. I mean, I don't want to name any names, sure? but okay. I worked on one project where I had an actor who could not memorize anymore. Oh no. Um, I think that his um, real life and his acting life were just clashing. Mm. So that was a fun experience of... Um, having to figure out what to do two nights before opening when your actor is the lead and they can't remember any oh of the text. Oh my goodness. So that was a, a fun time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've, wor I've like worked with one of those. <laughs> yep, that's, that's yeah. <laughs> paraphrasing and it's is, terrible is because, fascinating. Oh, <sighs> well, I feel so bad for the stage manager because if, for those of you who don't know, the stage manager writes down every single word of a mistake mm -hmm. in the report every night. And I would have pages and pages of reports coming in every oh, night. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh my God. So that was fun. Um, I think the project that we yeah. worked on, Steph, uh, was an experience. We worked on Matilda together yeah. and we had, how many kids did we have under the age of 12? Uh, I want to say, yeah, around 15. So, and that was, and it was like such an, um, cause like what I loved about it, it was your idea to have these all of these kids rather than adults playing kids it was just tough because it was a lot of <laughs> so kids tough. that were local actors and not necessarily you know New York kids quote unquote <laughs> well, and so what was wonderful yeah. was that the kids were fabulous yes. right and they ended up being amazing yes. and it was great to work with them and they were so into it and actually they were much better than most <laughs> of the New York actors I've worked with that are adults um but that was really great. But it was definitely a challenge to figure yeah. out, to, to remember that they're children. Yes. Right? Because yes. sometimes I'd be like, why aren't you getting yep. this? And then I realized, oh, because you're 10. <laughs> yep. And then, and then oh. I had to yell at them when um, they were all messing around backstage during tech it's so and like hard, in the green room right? and stuff. And you're like, why are you behaving like adults? Oh, right. <laughs> you're not. <laughs> So that was really interesting sort of working with that many yeah. kids it was really, really fun experience. But um, yeah, I think that just generally every project brings its own hijinks, yeah. right? Um, I do remember we did um, a production of Three Sisters mm -hmm. uh, in a, um, in like this uh, old house in uh, New York City. The house is one of the oldest houses in New York State. Oh. It's, it was a Dutch um, construction back in whenever it was the Dutch were here. Wow. And, uh, and that was fun because everything, the first act and second act and third act were all inside in this living house. So you could hear people upstairs walking when they're talking about that character. And um, I didn't direct that project. I was just a part sure. of it. And, uh, and what was great is that fourth act is outside so you never knew what the weather was going to be like. And actually our final day, it was stunning because it snowed. Oh. And so we were watching this amazing scene of, of Chekhov in the snow with blankets and hot water bottles. And that was a very magical That's experience. awesome. So I love Actually those. kind of feel like we were transporting yeah. to Russia. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> uh. Uh. 
That's right. I'm gonna have to doodle that image later. That's hilarious. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you had, or if you have any advice you could give uh, those who are either trying to get into the arts industry or have been in it for a while and are struggling through through the pandemic, uh, do you have any sort of, um, I guess, inspirational pieces or a piece of advice you'd give them that maybe have carried you forward either through your career or even through the pandemic itself? Do you have anything you, you want to put out there? Um, I think career-wise, uh, the one thing that I don't always remember, but I try to remember, is that everybody comes to different places at different times. Um, and I think that sometimes we have that feeling of why not me? Why not now? Um, because there's so much rejection in our business. So the thing that you know I keep telling my students at NYU is, you may be the person that's 21 that gets the TV show and you're a showrunner by the age of 28. You may be the person that gets a script sold when you're 50 and that's okay. There isn't a set way to do these things, right? There isn't a right time to be around. It's just keep doing the work. You know, it, it sucks sometimes because you have to do your survival job while you're working. We've all been there. We're all still doing it in certain <laughs> ways. Um, but it's just a case of you can't judge your work and yourself by everybody else. That's not the standard because everybody is different. And remembering that. Yeah. Wow. That. That is incredibly important, especially now. <laughs> yeah, well, with the pandemic, everything. Well, first of all, I don't know what's going to happen after all of this, because um, if we go back to the way things were, then this year is going to feel like it's just a weird pause. I have a feeling that in the arts that we're going to come back with maybe some new voices, perhaps some new ideas, some new ways of doing things. I'm hoping that this new start gets to be a new start as opposed to just a restart of what we had. I hope so. But you know, we'll see. Yeah. We can only hope, right? <laughs> um, yeah. With yeah. the hope of things starting in the fall and you, you know, you've mentioned a couple different things you're working on. Is there anything specific that you'd like to promote that we should keep an eye out for? And we'll make sure our, our listeners are, are paying attention to. Oh my gosh, I'm so bad at this. <laughs> this I don't do the like whole, I've got millions of followers thing. Um, do I have anything I want to promote? Uh, ugh, not really. Okay. Um, I guess uh, if anybody is interested, you can follow me on Twitter, as long as you don't mind me ranting. That's just <laughs> Melissa Annis um, with one L and one S. Uh, or you can visit uh, my Instagram, which is the same thing, Melissa Annis with one L and one S. Or you can go to my website to... Um, see what's going on once I update it, which is on my to-do list <laughs> this week. <laughs> um, and is, I think I saw King's Wife has also got its own social media and such hmm. too, right? So we can Yeah, you that. can go to uh, the King's Wife musical, which is on Instagram. Um, and there you'll find lots of links to the YouTube. We have something going on um, Spotify soon and there's some oh, other stuff awesome. in there. Okay, good. So cool. Yay. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, guys. Thank this was such a you. fun conversation. This is the best. I'm I'm so I, you know, you were one of the first people I thought of when we knew we were gonna do this, but I wanted to save you until we had some more listeners because I knew you'd have an oh. amazing interview and you did. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited to uh, hear your other episodes because yeah. I think that it's so nice to just have that's the other thing that I'm really enjoying about this. Um well, it's not really I'm enjoying it, but something I've discovered that I'm enjoying is just podcasts yeah. in general. Do you have I'm a obsessed. favorite right now? Oh my gosh, I listen to so many. And actually, I've also just joined Clubhouse. <gasps> yes. yes. Yep. Yep. Which um, I haven't quite figured out how it works yet, but I, it's quite interesting to be able to find a room of people discussing things that you're interested mm -hmm. in. Um, so that's been great. But I'm just loving this idea that people are having conversations, you know? I think one of our problems is that we don't have enough mm -hmm. conversations in our society. So it's nice to be in a room with you guys, even though we're not <laughs> in a room, room together. I know. <laughs> one day. One day, one day there'll be a studio and we can fly Yeah, out. right. And we'll be able to have <laughs> guests actually come in. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, 
listeners, thanks again for, for, uh, staying tuned. And, um, I know that you found Melissa extremely fascinating. And if you didn't, you're dead to me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, please, please continue uh, to follow us every week. Um, like rate, review, subscribe, all of those things on um, any podcast platform you find, we're probably on. And if we're not on it and you want us to be, you should let us know. Um, You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at PWRP podcast is our handle. Um, if you'd like a free sticker, um, and we're actually in the process of making some, um, new versions and, um, other fun stickery things. Um, and all you have to do is, uh, leave us a review, um, and email us and we will send you a sticker, um, because we just want to get as many people listening as possible to all of these awesome stories. I want a sticker. Oh, you get, get a sticker because you are a guest. <laughs> okay. okay, I love yeah. stickers. <laughs> and if you are listening to this podcast, you'd like to share your story as well, whether you are just hopping into the arts industry or somebody who's been working in it for a while and you want to also vent your pandemic frustrations with us, uh, please email <laughs> us at pwrp.pod at gmail.com. And we will get back to you within about 90 seconds or so. I think uh, the last <laughs> week it's been about uh, 12 hours. Yeah, we've been busy doing yeah, other stuff, we've but been busy the past couple weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I, I assure you, the alerts come to our phones, and uh, we have to figure out who's going to email them first, so it's not awkward. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, if you would like to reach out to us, please reach out to us um, through our email, and we'd love to sit down and talk to you. Yeah. All right, Melissa. We end every episode with an awkward uh, goodbye. So if you'd like to join us, bye. 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 Well, as we say in Wales, double <laughs> <laughs>